0: Hello, I'm Cheryl Kennedy from the Library of Congress. The National Book Festival is in its seventh year, and it has attracted tens of thousands of book lovers of all ages to the nation's capital to celebrate reading and lifelong literacy. This free event is sponsored and organized by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. This year, the festival will take place on Saturday, September 29th, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Festival goers will meet and interact with 70 best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. There will be activities for the entire family. If you're unable to attend in person, we invite you to experience the festival online. Our podcast interview series with well-known authors, along with webcasts from the festival, will be available through the National Book Festival's website at loc.gov bookfest. We now talk with Carmen Agraditi, one of many award-winning authors who will appear in the Children's Pavilion at the festival on September 29th. Carmen is an internationally known children's book author, storyteller, and radio contributor for National Public Radio. She was born in Havana, Cuba, and immigrated to the United States with her family in 1963, during the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution. Carmen has received numerous awards for her best-selling children's books. Her latest is a colorful version of a popular Cuban folktale, Martina the Beautiful Cockroach, a Cuban Folktale, is being released in English and Spanish. Welcome, Carmen. Well, I'm glad to be here, Cheryl. Thank you. Tell me, is there a special talent or understanding that an author needs to communicate with children?
1: I think that it's important to know a child's world, whether it is through your own vivid memories of childhood. And I have, I have this wellspring of um, recollection that comes from you know playing in the creek all day. When we, I was a child, we went outside and we didn't come in until the streetlights came on whenever the weather was warm enough, which in the south is, you know, most of the year. And I were playing Vikings and playing Sea Hunt and not watching it, playing it, making up games even from the TV show you watch. Of course, the TV had three channels and probably two shows that you were interested in all week. So uh, I think that it helps to have memories of your own to, to relate to. Um, most importantly, in order to to write, I think, for children and to tell stories to children, you have to be willing to suspend disbelief just as they do. And that includes the myth that you are a grown-up. I think it's really important to say when you're with them, I'm 8 years old, I'm 10 years old. What do I like? And if you've ever been in the world of like a 10 year old, it's really amazing. They're like a portal to the universe. Everything is fascinating to a 9 year old. I joke and say all God's children are in the 4th grade because they're just <laughs> a marvelous age. And nothing, nothing to them is really un- completely unappealing. I mean, they may not want to eat it like Brussels sprouts, but they're going to be curious about it. And, th- and whether it's, you know, the viscosity of their own mucus, which is so disgusting and adult to a grown up, you know, but to a kid it's just, oh yeah. To the Madagascar hissing cockroach, holy! Oh, for a pet. I mean, it's just there is almost there's almost nothing in their world that isn't endlessly interesting because it's still new, but they're just on the cusp of being old enough to grasp the world being bigger than themselves.
0: If that makes sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely that's fascinating. Now, tell me, you think the secret to longevity is um, just having the spirit of a child i well I, there's a difference between having a,
1: a childlike sort of per, outlook or even a personality that refuses to grow up I and mean, we 've all had encountered those people, mostly they're maddening and make us our lives very tiresome. but there's a difference between being a, an adult who is functional who pays their bills and shows up on time and does their work. But, yes, but keeps within them that sense of of wonder about the world and the people in it. And the people that I love the most as artists, not only writers but also illustrators and, and composers, are the ones that when you sit and talk to them, say, at a Waffle House, they'll be as fascinated by the conversation about you know, their own work as – Look what he's doing. Look at the cook. And and the cook is suddenly flipping pancakes or whatever. And they they don't miss it. You know, I think being present is what keeps us young. Not missing it. When I, tell, I tell little, very young children, when you're six, don't wish you were seven. Don't look back on five. You probably wouldn't anyway. Mm-hmm. Because five is gone and and seven seven has its own story to tell you, but right now it's six. And the moment six is gone, or 46, it's not coming back again. So don't miss it. And for us as older people, it's the same thing. You know, don't look back on 27, whether it was wonderful or it was, you know, the the, the year that basically annihilated you. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's gone. And heaven knows what we have tomorrow, next year, but right this moment, this, this present moment, and sometimes... I feel it so acutely. It can be the warmth of a coffee mug as my hand wraps around it. It can be the texture of some fabric I just, like a shawl or even an old pair of jeans that I put on. And I love those moments because I do think, yes, they, maybe they provide a certain extension of one's youthfulness. But I think also it's the best part about being human. Mm-hmm. Being here.
0: I'm sure that you would agree that creativity is the essence of any art form. Mm-hmm. What? Where do you get yours? Oh my goodness.
1: I mean, no doubt. You know, the thought is, if, if when I've told stories or or if anyone's read my books, at, at some point they think, oh my goodness, how creative? Not really. I I am um I'm dogged. You know, I will doggedly pursue an idea. And at first, it is my prototypes of stories are so clumsy and uh, unwielding. I mean, they're just usually just awful. And the creative part, I think, comes from, harking back to the last question, from observation, from constantly being aware of where I am and who's there and what things look like and how they smell. And if there's any creative part to, to story writing, to me, um, it's the crafting of the story. The initial idea, of course, which I think comes from you know some muse in a grotto somewhere um, that sort of sparks something, something you hear, something you see, something you experience that touches a really deep chord. Um, but then comes the work of crafting the story and working on the story. And I think for me, creativity is something that you have to give to. You have to give back. I think the gods give us that initial piece of inspiration. They expect us to do the work. And it is work to craft a story. And you can get very creative by using what, what, you, what you've learned as you've walked through this world.
0: How much of what we read of Carmen Agra Dede is influenced by her cultural background? Mm.
1: I think... Of course, uh, the culture of birth, meaning culture by na- of nationality, a culture of family, and culture of neighborhood, because they're all different, culture of church or synagogue, I think they all inform us. You know, they, they, they do influence who we are. But for me, um, I think it's accurate to say that I'm this very, sorry, I suppose, a strange dichotomy of a very Cuban person um, I love the food I, I love the music, I love the language I love the, the picaresque sort of um, moments that you can have in Cuban Spanish it's, um, it's just so flavorful and then I, I have equal parts at least um, deep south where I've spent 44 years of my life I started out in an enclave you know, sort of, of a Cuban community that was very, very closed off and um not hermetically sealed, but pretty 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 closed off from the rest of the community, but eventually grew into you know took a little forays into that community, first through school and then later through things I joined civic things and um in time, I got i, I, I became truly uh, I can't think of the right word <laughs> Still figure huh. um I grew to love the flavor of, again, the food, the music, the storytelling, the language. You know, Southern English has a whole other cadence, Um, is real slow. And it isn't the same everywhere. That's more of a mountain, a Tennessee mountain accent. Uh, Jack Dunn, come down the mountain. But then you go to, say, Agnes Scott, uh, D-A-R, Southern, Oh lord, yes, I went to Agnes Scott, you know, my sister went there too. It's the kind of lady that keeps, you know, butterscotch in her bosom when you were a kid and flip it out and it was always warm. Um, <laughs> 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 so, so, so all these, all these facets to, to being southern. Anyway, I, So, you know, I, I suppose, you know, I, I, I never, when I'm asked about one side or the other, they're no longer one entirely, you know, they, they, they bled into one another. And um, and I love both cultures. They're not always easy to bridge. But if I learned anything from my own experience is how alike we all are. In so many ways. And you will certainly have a think from the Cuban culture and the Southern culture that there'd be, you know, not as many disparities as you think, but there, that there would be that many parallels. But we're, Cubans and Southerners truly value family the clan, the tribe, is, is, is sort of the first rung on the ladder of, you know, the world. And then maybe comes your, you know, your neighborhood and you know, your church and then your community and your country and so forth. Um, and the Cubans and Southerners are both very literate. I mean, we love to read. We love stories. We love to food. You're hungry, we feed you. You're not hungry, we feed you. You're sad, we feed you. You're mourning, we feed you. You're happy, we feed you. You're getting engaged, we feed you. You just broke up with your fiancé, we feed you. And mountains of food. Always, love through food, and we're ancestor worshippers, both cultures. Whether it's in Spanish, um, within moments of meeting someone, uh, one Cuban will say to another, they dime, mi vida, tu gente?" The southern version of which is, "So tell me, darling, who are your people?" <laughs> <laughs> which really is, you know, means who are you and who you come from. And it doesn't have to be that your people, you know, were the scions of great families and so forth, but they were your people, and they matter. they the cultures that believe that who you came from made part of who you are. And for some of us, that thought is absolutely heart-stopping and terrifying. <laughs> but then, Well, I'm
0: from the South, so I certainly agree. Then you know. And it's hard to, you know, do you ever see like
1: a Southern film or a film that's, um, hailed as a, a story of the true South, and you sit and you think, who are these people? I don't know these people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is some Hollywood up.
1: person's you know, version they put through some bizarre lens of caricatures of Southerners. Um, you know, Southerners aren't just sweet tea and and overalls and civil rights and all those issues that are well, the serious ones, of course, are critical. There are layers upon layers of subtleties. And in and to be be a black southerner be a white southerner, it's not the same thing. But they're not always at war with each other either, especially now. But even historically, my own family came in the middle of civil rights, and here we were. This now this was in the early '60s when being Latin was actually sort of being like an exotic house hothouse flower or something. Um, now not so much, <laughs> but here we were, this little tiny. Cuban community in this little southern town, very progressive little southern town, Decatur, Georgia. But things were changing there, and um, you know, the Cubans I knew um, not only supported civil rights; many of them marched and and did what they could. But for the children, you know, even in school, it was more—it was just an awakening to something that was not part of. For all the troubles that we had had as a country, that wasn't a part of our life concept of separate but equal, that concept of the color of your skin somehow defining you. Some of our first patriots were Spanish and black and Creole. Um, I do love that so much.
0: Now, your Cuban heritage is a dominant theme in your latest work. Uh, Martina, the beautiful cockroach, a Cuban folktale. I'll never look at a cockroach the same again. (laughs) I'm I'm personally thrilled.
1: Uh, (laughs) This is probably every entomologist in the country.
0: Okay. Um, A reviewer said that your book was simply extraordinary. Would you share a few excerpts with us? I'd love to. Here we go. Martina Josefina Catalina Cucaracha
1: was a beautiful cockroach. She lived in a cozy street lamp in Old Havana with her big, lovable family. Now that Martina was 21 days old, she was ready to give her leg in marriage. The Cucaracha household was crawling with excitement. Every señora in the family had something to offer. Tia Cuca gave her una peineta, a seashell comb. Mama gave her una mantilla, a lace shawl. But Abuela, her Cuban grandmother, gave her... Un consejo increíble, some shocking advice. You want me to do what? Martina was aghast. You are a beautiful cockroach, said Abuela. Finding husbands to choose from will be easy. Picking the right one could be tricky. Baba stammered. Martina, how you spilling coffee on a suitors shoes help me find a good husband? Her grandmother smiled. It will make him angry. Then you will know how he would speak to you when he loses his temper. Trust me Martina. Because it is, she never fails. Martina wasn't so sure.
0: That's really very nice. What advice would you give parents to encourage reading and lifelong literacy? Read. Read by
1: example, model reading. And if you're not a big reader yourself, and there are people who aren't, read with your children. If they don't, they're not going to see you reading. Spend time reading with them, and they're not too young. They're never too young to be read to. They have, they have to learn um, physically how to hold a book. They have to learn to turn pages. You could start this with a 12-month-old child and younger. They're little hard books now, wonderful. And they have been for a long time, they've been available. You know, the ones that, the, that even a teething baby can go at and pretty much, you know, not, not put a dent in. Um I, with my own girls, you know, reading was just such a part of home. And if a child grows up feeling that reading is pleasurable, that reading is comforting and safe, is sitting on your parents' lap or next to someone who loves you while you unfold or unspool, is such a great word, a story together and turn the pages. And they have a job. Their job could be to turn the page. Or oh, if you have a favorite book, that's always so wonderful. It's like a blankie. And you only problem with that, of course, is that eventually you will go to load that book. Um, I, if I had to read Good Night Moon one more time at one point, I thought that it was going to become an aer- aerodynamic book and just go flying straight out one of the bedroom windows. But they loved it. And even one of my, all of my daughters are readers, but the one that was more of a math child, uh, she nonetheless grew into her own kind of reading. And we allowed all kinds of reading. Comic books are reading. Graphic novels are reading. Newspapers are reading. Sports Illustrated is reading.
0: Well, you've been a favorite at the National Book Festival Uh, In the past, of course, you were there in um, 2002, 2003. What can fans expect to hear from you at the book festival on September 29th?
1: Um, Well, I will be telling Martina, The Beautiful Cockroach, because this is the only book that was in in the oral before it went to Texas. And other books I've worked on, this is my seventh book, uh, have, that has not been the case at all. So this story has a an oral version. Which what's fun about that is to hear a story told, and then go to the text and see how it's different, and do a, a sort of a little comparative study, even if it's just for fun, with children. How you know, how is this different when she told it, than when she read it? And do things happen when you tell it that don't happen in the book, or vice versa? So I'll be I'll be Telling the story, and then um, I don't always do this, but I like doing at least a little bit uh, of a humanities-based program when we can, when it's possible. And the book festival is wonderful; uh, they give us really tremendous largesse in that respect. So when I'm finished, I'm going to open up for Q and A, so that we can have some audience sort of uh, questions and participation. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, Carmen. As I said, I'll never look at a cockroach the same way again after reading your book. Hello, I'm thrilled, and so is Martina. Good. Well, thank you. We look forward to hearing more at the National Book Festival on Saturday, September 29th on the National Mall from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a list of participating authors, visit loc.gov bookfest.